Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Crisis of Crime. I'm your host, Rachel Means, and I'm a criminologist. Thank you for joining me for my weekly podcast where we talk about criminology and criminal justice reform. This week, I want to talk about all the criminological theories that are labeled as radical or critical. Generally, these theories are put into fringe categories and almost framed as conspiracy theories because they generally make bold and brazen claims that challenge traditional societal norms. There are multiple theories in criminology that fit into this radical category, such as the radical theory of feminist criminology, postmodern criminology, radical criminology, critical race theory, constitutive criminology, environmental or green criminology, and convict criminology. All of these theories generally fall into what is known as postmodern criminological theories. Today, I thought we could take a look at some of these theories specifically and identify the concepts that are present across all of them, and if they are really as radical as some would lead you to believe. Before we jump in, though, It's important to understand how postmodern theories differ from the classical and modern theories of criminology. All criminological theories are generally looking to explain why people offend. Classic criminological theories put the full explanation on the individual, having free will, rational choice, and morality as the explanations for criminal and deviant behavior. Examples of classical criminological theories are the classical theory, rational choice theory, and deterrence theory. For the classical criminological theories, it's emphasized that the punishment needs to fit the crime and acts as a deterrent for future crime. For example, in classical theory, it describes how for an individual to be deterred from engaging in criminal behavior, the punishment must be swift, certain, and severe. If the punishment does not meet all three of these requirements, then the individual will engage in criminal behavior because people at their core want to increase their pleasure and decrease their pain. And without a swift, certain, and severe punishment, the pain, or the punishment, will not be a great enough deterrent. So they will engage in the behavior that will increase their pleasure, even if that behavior is labeled as criminal. Modern criminological theories still have the individual at the center of the explanation for crime, but instead of focusing on free will, rational choice, and morality, it focuses more on the individual's circumstances that led to the criminal or deviant behavior. So basically, the individual is not solely to blame for their criminal behavior. Modern criminological theories rely heavily on rationality and the scientific process to help explain crime. Examples of modern criminological theories are the strain theory, the anime theory, and the biosocial theory. Instead of focusing on punishment and deterrence, the modern criminological theories focus on correcting the circumstances that led to the criminal or deviant behavior. For example, the strain theory can be used to explain how poverty increases the crime rate. When a society has a high poverty rate and the people are unable to afford to survive in that society through legitimate means, then people will turn to illegitimate illegal activities to essentially supplement their income. Therefore, a solution to reduce the crime rate would be to decrease the amount of poverty in a society and to provide more financial and welfare assistance to the people in need. Postmodern criminological theories, as I mentioned, focus on concepts that have been deemed radical in American society, 
relying on racism, classism, sexism, imperialism, and exploitation as explanations for criminal or deviant behavior. Postmodern criminological theories do not focus on the individual at all. Instead, they look at the power dynamic between different groups of people and how these groups interact with societal structures and culture. For example, environmental or green criminology suggests that wealthy companies can use their power to influence environmental regulation that results in toxic materials being released into primarily low-income communities, likely with high minority populations. Now, not only do these toxic materials being released into these communities affect the surrounding environment, but it can affect the health of the inhabitants as well, which can lead to physiological changes in people's brains, which can actually lead to an increase in criminal behavior. This ultimately can lead to a higher crime rate in that community, which further disenfranchises the residents. An example of one of these toxins that can increase the likelihood that a person will engage in criminal behavior is lead. Postmodern ideology identifies two specific types of harm that are caused by the use of power. They are the harm of reduction and the harm of repression. The harm of reduction is used to explain crimes that cause the victim to endure some kind of loss or injury. An example of this would be any kind of violent crime, such as forcible rape. Rape itself is about power, so it's an appropriate example to help understand this concept. But as I've mentioned, postmodern criminological theories predominantly focus on societal structures. So an example of the harm of reduction on a societal scale can be seen in the case of Enron. The Enron case was multifaceted and impacted hundreds of thousands of people. But a specific example of the harm caused by Enron was when they purposefully created rolling blackouts in California's power grid, causing the cost of electricity to skyrocket upwards of 800%. Every California resident affected by the rolling blackouts experienced significant financial loss. The harm of repression is when power is used to affect someone's future opportunities. On an individual level, an example of the harm of repression would be something like human trafficking, where an offender is using their power to force someone into some kind of slavery, such as sexual or labor, and this type of harm is going to affect this person's future. They are going to continue being harmed as time progresses. On a societal scale, an example of the harm of repression would be the discrimination that we saw in the housing market starting in the 1930s which used redlining and racism to almost exclusively provide home loans to white families. The effects of this spread far and wide and still linger today. Policies like this further increased the racial wealth gap in America since white families were gaining equity by owning homes, while Black or African Americans were often given no other choice but to rent. Another consequence of this policy has to do with property taxes, Public schools are funded by property taxes, so if there's an area with high homeownership and high property values, there will be more funds available for public schools in that district. Conversely, if an area has lower property values and more rental units, there will be less property taxes available for the schools, which then creates disparities in education. I want to focus for a bit on a few specific theories. 
postmodern criminology, radical criminology, and critical race theory. These theories do not make the focus of a crime on a person breaking law, but as I mentioned before, it focuses on the misuse of power. So if a crime occurs, it's because someone used their power to cause harm to others. Quick tangent. I want to clarify because I know I'm saying postmodern a lot, Postmodern criminological theories is an umbrella term to capture all the criminological theories that fall under it. But there's also a specific theory under that umbrella called postmodern criminology. It's similar as with the classical criminological theories and that one is called classical theory falling under it. Okay, so for postmodern criminology, as I mentioned, it focuses on the power dynamic between different groups of people in society. Specifically, the power to communicate and implement reality. I know that sounds like a science fiction movie, but it's essentially a group of wealthy and powerful people using their power and resources to impose their reality onto others. I want you to think about an average school's American history curriculum. There are so many historical events that are either altered or completely omitted from these textbooks. And the reason for that is so people in power are able to influence the reality of students to believe a certain narrative about American history and ultimately instill white supremacy in young American minds. At first glance, this sounds like a conspiracy theory, but when you start researching real American history provided through alternative means such as Black and Indigenous histories, you start to see just how much has been left out of the mainstream history curriculums. Radical criminology is similar to postmodern criminology in that it focuses on power, but instead of using power to influence reality, it describes how the wealthy elite of a society create the rules and laws of that society specifically to control the lower classes. Therefore, Laws are designed so if a person of a lower class stature acts in a way that is threatening to the wealthy elite, it is labeled as a crime and is punished. Now, I don't know a ton about the stock market and exactly how it works, but what happened earlier this year in January with GameStop and Robinhood is a great example of people in a lower class stature threatening the wealthy elite with their actions. Now, I would love to elaborate more on it, but I am just not well-versed enough in the stock market to talk about it at this moment, but maybe in a future episode after lots and lots of research. But another example of radical criminology is by the fact that one of the most common punishments to receive for a crime is some kind of financial punishment. We see this with punishments such as fines, bail, and punitive damages. Furthermore, a lot of these financial punishments are set amounts, meaning that they're not based on the offender's financial status. So if a person who falls into a low-income bracket is fined for reckless driving, and let's say the fine is around $2,500, it's going to be financially devastating to that person. It's likely that they will have to choose whether to pay their bills or to pay this fine, or they may have to skip meals because they couldn't afford groceries. But if a person who falls into a high-income bracket receives the same fine of $2,500, it will likely not impact their daily life at all. It's only a minor inconvenience. I know it may not seem like it on its face, but what society is really saying with these financial punishments is, if you're rich, you can get away with just about anything as long as you're willing to pay. And if you're poor, 
one wrong move can ruin your life. Critical race theory in terms of criminology is similar to radical criminology in that the powerful elite are using their wealth and influence to control a group of people, but more specifically, it examines the intersection of race and laws and how laws have been tailor-made to affect people of a particular race adversely compared to others. One of the clearest examples of this would be punishments for possession of crack cocaine versus powder cocaine set forth by the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act. Blacker African-American people in the inner cities were more likely to be users of crack cocaine, while white people in the suburbs were more likely to be users of powder cocaine. The 1986 Act implemented mandatory minimums for drug possession. A five-year mandatory minimum was set for the possession of either type of cocaine, but the disparity in the amount that triggered that mandatory minimum was astronomical. A person would receive the mandatory minimum if they are arrested with five grams of crack cocaine. But for powder cocaine, the amount needed to receive the mandatory minimum was 500 grams. Remember, this is the exact same drug, just in different forms. The only difference was the primary demographic that was using them. And I want to be very clear, these disparities were not created by accident. They were very deliberate. It's yet another law in a whole history of laws dating back to the days of slavery meant to disenfranchise and oppress Black or African American people. If you haven't watched the Netflix documentary 13th or read Michelle Alexander's book The New Jim Crow, I highly suggest you do so. Both do an excellent job of laying out all the facts and putting together a timeline that really pulls these concepts all together. The 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, was passed in 1865, but there was a caveat in the amendment. It made slavery and involuntary servitude illegal, except it could still be used as a punishment if a person was convicted and found guilty of a crime. After the 13th Amendment was passed, people still wanted to have free labor, and this caveat made it possible. All lawmakers had to do was create laws that disproportionately affected Black or African American people so they could be arrested and found guilty, and once in prison, could be used as slave labor again. In 1965, when the Civil Rights Act was passed, a lot of these laws, such as the Jim Crow laws, were abolished. And lawmakers had to once again figure out how they were going to keep their prison labor, enter the crack epidemic and the war on drugs. And this has helped lead to mass incarceration in America. America only has 4% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the world's prison population. And it's not because America has a higher crime rate than everywhere else. It's because America likes free labor. So coming back to my initial question, are these theories really that radical or are they just revealing the realistic and shameful underbelly of the American society? The way I see it, radical theories are calling out all the shameful truths about America that people in power are trying to hide or deny, especially when we are talking about the systematic damage to entire groups of people. There's been some progress in that some politicians are finally talking about these issues and promising change, but 
So far, they've pretty much been empty promises. I mean, I think about the people who are in charge of creating federal laws in America, which is Congress. And most of them are so old that they grew up during segregation, Jim Crow, or when women couldn't even open a credit card without their husband's signature. I mean, honestly, how can we expect these people to be the pioneers of change that we need? Okay, enough of my soapbox moment. So postmodern criminological theories are unfortunately all too realistic and highly applicable. But I also think that classical and modern criminological theories are still relevant when we're discussing reasons behind criminal behavior. The truth is, America is a really big, diverse place with multiple subcultures, and for every crime committed, there will be a specific motive tailored to that offender. One ideology of criminological theories won't be able to encapsulate all American offenders, but if we try to write off postmodern criminological theories as radical and not to be taken seriously, then we are doing the field of criminology a great disservice because we won't be understanding all possible motives and we will find ourselves guilty of following in America's footsteps of disenfranchising entire populations of people. Okay, friends, that is all I have for you today. Be sure to let me know your thoughts on postmodern criminological theories and which one you found most interesting. You can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Crisis of Crime, or you can visit my website at www.crisisofcrime.com, where you can send me a direct message. Tune in next Monday for an all-new episode, and until then, this has been Crisis of Crime. Crisis of Crime